Mark chapter 8, starting today in verse 27. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33 is our text this morning. As you're getting there, let me ask you this. What's your favorite biography? Your favorite biography. Or perhaps we might ask it this way for those who are not so much a reader. Who is your favorite figure from history? Your favorite figure from history. Who's your favorite? Who is someone from the past that you would consider a hero or that you just have always been intrigued by and you like learning about? I've enjoyed personally learning about great men of the past such as Martin Luther King Jr., Robert Murray McShane, Charles Spurgeon, and William Tyndale. When I was little, I had different heroes, like Larry Bird or Michael Jordan. But we need heroes, don't we? We need people to look up to. We long for this. We, we love it. We eat this stuff up. But one thing you learn as you read biographies of the great men and women of the past is that it's not helpful for a biographer to hide their failures. It's not helpful. That doesn't do us any good. That's not a good biography that just makes this person look perfect and that, like, like they never made any mistakes. They never had any imperfections. Any good biography will include those things. They're important to who that person is. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite figures from church history, one of my favorite authors and theologians. He pursued the Lord with all his heart and all his strength, fervently in a way that I've hardly ever seen anyone else. And yet, when you study his life, you come quickly to realize he neglected his wife and kids. He neglected his wife and kids as he did that. It was an imperfection. But I'm, I'm thankful that that's there. I'm thankful that we see the imperfections of our heroes because perfect portrayals of heroes actually discourage and demoralize us. They discourage us. They demoralize us. It's much more helpful if we can see their humanity, if we can see that they're like us. Today in the Bible, we get an in-depth look at one of the most human characters in all of Scripture, the Apostle Peter. Let's look at our text today. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 down to verse 33. This is God's word. Mark writes, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, our text naturally divides up into two parts, and I want to look at them in turn. The first, verses 27 through 30, we look at this great confession. And then verses 31 through 34, we look at what I'm calling a satanic rebuke. But first, verses 27 through 30, and hopefully after both are done, I'll, I'll connect them for you, show you how these two are connected. 
In verses 27 through 30, Jesus comes to his disciples and says, Who do people say that I am? And they, they tell him, and Peter gives that wonderful answer. And then just briefly, I want to address verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, we've seen this a number of times as we've gone through the book of Mark. We've been going through the book of Mark chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this is not the first time that Jesus has, has encouraged this secrecy. He heals someone and he says, don't go spread the word about this. Keep it a secret. Keep it under wraps. And we have said before, but I want to explain, especially for those who might not have been here for those sermons, that this is Jesus saying, I I don't want to accelerate things too quickly. Jesus knows he is on the road to his death. He's on the road to the cross. But he has all of these things that he has to accomplish before he gets there. All of these tasks that the Father has given him to do. Before he dies. And so he knows once word starts getting out, he's, he's starting that ball rolling down the hill, so to speak, to eventually come to the cross and his death. He doesn't want it to happen too soon. We have also said previously, and I'll say it again, again just briefly, that it's, it's interesting how throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells people to keep it a secret, to not spread the word about him, and yet they do anyway. And then to us... To our shame, he tells us to go spread the word about him, and we stay silent. But that's not the point of this text today. The main point is Jesus' question. Who do people say that I am? Think about going into a, a classroom setting. You're a student, and you get a pop quiz, and the teacher says, there's just one question on this pop quiz, and your entire grade depends on how you answer this one question right here, right now. Your grade for the whole semester. Well, brothers and sisters, everything depends on your answer to this one question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, Jesus begins by saying, who do people say that I am? Who who do people say that Jesus is? Let's ask that question for ourselves. Who do people say, just in general, who do people say that Jesus is? Is he a myth? Is he a legend? The Bible claims that this man healed the sick and gave sight to the blind, that he made the lame walk. The Bible claims that this guy walked on water and he fed thousands with just a few loaves and fishes. The Bible claims this man raised people from the dead and even died himself and came back from it. Is this stuff really true? I mean, could this have actually happened? Some say no. Some claim that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person in history, but those things that I just mentioned, those are legends. Those have been spun and fabricated to make him look more amazing, more powerful than he actually was. Some claim that Jesus is a myth, that Jesus is a legend. Who do people say that he is? Is he just a good teacher? Is he a good teacher? Is he, is he a, a dispenser of wisdom like Confucius? Is he a good ethical man like Mahatma Gandhi? Is he just one of the great teachers in the history of the world? Well, I could not say it better than C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, so I'll quote Lewis here. This is one of the classic passages from that classic book. But Lewis says on this topic, he says, I am trying here 
to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Right? That makes no sense when we really deal with the things that Jesus said and that he claimed. Jesus walked around claiming to be God, claiming to be equal with God. Anyone who says such things is either a blasphemous, evil teacher, or he's, like, like Lewis said, out of his mind. He's insane. He just doesn't know what reality is. But the only other option is that it's true, that, that he really was the Son of God, God in the flesh. But it makes no sense to say he was a great moral teacher because great teachers do not say those things. If you ever encounter a man or a woman out here claiming to be God, run the other direction. Like, write that person off and do not accept anything that they say. That person is dangerous or out of their mind, right? And this is blasphemy for anyone but the one who actually said it because he actually was the Son of God. He actually was who he said he was. Otherwise, it would have been blasphemous. It would have been worthy of death and stoning, as they often tried to do. Is he the Lord? Now now I'm moving kind of into the question of not what do people say that he is, who do people say that he is, but who do you say that he is? Is he the Lord? What do you say? Is he the Lord? Is he another man? Another in the long line of religious leaders and thought leaders in history. You've got Muhammad, you've got Plato, Aristotle, Joseph Smith, and Jesus among them. Is he just another man? Or is he more than that? Is he the Lord of all the earth? Is he God in the flesh? Is he the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess? Or is he just a great man in a long history of great men. Is he the Lord? But we need to go deeper than that. Not just is he the Lord, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? You see, there is a way to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord of all the earth and yet hold back yourself from him. There is a way to accept that he is God in the flesh and yet to refuse to allow him lordship over your life. You see, to follow Christ, it must be more than accepting the facts about him. He was crucified. He rose from the dead. He will return one day. Many people think that because they believe those facts, they believe those to be true, that that means they are saved. Brothers and sisters, that is not salvation. That is not salvation. How do we know? Because even Satan and his demons know that those things are true. 
and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Knowing that those things are true, believing even with all your heart that those things are true is not enough. It is not enough. Is he not just the Lord, is he your Lord? You understand the word Lord there. You might as well say master. Is he your master? And so what this means is, do you submit your life to him? Do you let him make demands of you? That's that's a question to ask yourself. Is he really my Lord? Okay, well, do I let him make demands of me? Do I actually try to change my life based on things that he says? When, when my will and his come into conflict, what, what, what do I do? Do I follow Jesus as long as it's convenient? Or do I try to follow when it's inconvenient, when it is uncomfortable, when it's not what my flesh wants? Do you change to fit what he wants you to be? In John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. A lot of people that say they love Jesus. Jesus says, here's the, here's the test, here's the evidence. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And this doesn't mean you never sin. But it does mean that there are those, as John says in the book of 1 John, there are those who say they know the Lord, but they do not keep his word. They do not walk in his ways. It's not about your feelings. It's not about what you will tell me. Do you keep his word? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your Savior? You know, sometimes when, when we have people come and get baptized, we have them repeat this great confession of Peter's that, that we believe that he is the Christ. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That, that, that's actually a part that Mark doesn't record here. But if you look at this same text in the book of Matthew, Matthew's account of Peter's confession, he says, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We'll say that. And sometimes we'll, we'll say, and I take him as my Lord and my Savior, right? Is Jesus your Savior? Has he saved you from your sins? Have you come to him in faith as the only one who can wash you clean of your sins? Do you trust him as your only salvation? When you stand before God, if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What would you say if God were to say, why why should I let you into heaven? I'm here to tell you, if you begin by by talking about yourself and all of the things that you have tried to do, you've missed it. The only appeal that we have to the Lord is Christ. The only reason why he should let this wretched sinner into his presence for all eternity is Jesus and his death on the cross and his blood that covers over our sins. That is the only thing that we have to appeal to. And it's more than enough. It's more than enough, praise God. But it's all we've got. It's all we've got. He is our Savior. And so, who do you say that he is? Is he your friend and brother? Is he your friend and brother? Do you know him? Do you know him? Not just do you know of him. Not just do you know about him. Do you know him? 
through time spent with him, from personal experience. Do you know his heart? Do you know his ways? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks of those who will say to him on the judgment, we did all of these things in your name. We did all of these good things in your name. And Jesus will tell them, you cannot enter because I never knew you. I never knew you. Is he the one your heart longs for? Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, let me tell you right now, kind of got a hint of it in John 14 there in Jesus' words. Jesus' question is, who do you say that I am? But anybody can say whatever they want with their mouths. Anybody can say, like even right now in your own mind, you can say what you believe. But what does your life say? Who do you say Jesus is if he didn't take you on your words, but your deeds, your life? Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's all ask that of ourselves today. Now, second, I want to move on to that second part of our text, what I'm calling the satanic rebuke, where Jesus began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He began to tell them he was going to be killed. It's going to happen, and then he will rise again. No doubt they they did not understand fully, but it says he said it plainly, verse 32, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. In Matthew's account, Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, this shall never happen to you. This is never going to happen to you. And then Jesus responds by saying, get behind me, Satan. Satan. Think about what it would have felt like to have been the disciples and to hear Jesus call one of you Satan. And it's not Judas. Now they didn't know what was going to happen there, but this isn't even Judas here. This is Peter. Satan. Why would Jesus respond like this? Why didn't he respond with gentleness and understanding? If you know Jesus, you might have expected that. You might have expected that he would respond with gentleness and understanding. Why didn't he say something like, Peter, thank you for your concern for me and for my life, but you just don't understand what I have to do. Thank you for your concern. It's good that that it was in your heart that you want to protect me or keep me from dying. After all, isn't Peter just communicating that? Isn't that what Peter's saying? That he just doesn't want Jesus to die? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter whips out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus has to tell him to put it away. That's not the way that this is supposed to go. That Jesus has to submit to this. But Peter Peter just was ready to protect him. right? Isn't that just what, what Peter's doing here? We get that Peter might be misguided. But isn't his heart in the right place? And Jesus calls him Satan. Isn't his heart in the right place? No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Because if his heart were in the right place, and if Peter was just misguided, Jesus, I think, would have responded with gentleness and understanding. We have an example of something very similar to this in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7, David has it in his heart to build a house for God. He says... I dwell in a palace, and the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant dwells in a tent. I want to build a palace. I want to build a temple for the Lord. I want it to be great and majestic. I want it to be fitting for the Lord to dwell in, for his presence to dwell in. And God, through the prophet Nathan, comes to David and says, 
it's, it's good that this was in your heart, but no, that's not my will right now. You're not going to be the one to do this. I'll have your son do it for me, but you will not. That's not my will, David, but it's good that it was in your heart. Moreover, God gives David a blessing. God says, David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build you a house, a spiritual house, a spiritual lineage of kings to follow you on the throne, eventually leading to Christ. And so there we see God respond with a no. Your, your will is not my will, but it's gentle. It's with a blessing even. It's good that it was in his heart. There we see kind of what I would expect here if... Peter's heart was in the right place and he was just a little misguided. But instead, Jesus responds with one of the most forceful rebukes he ever gave to anyone. Get behind me, Satan. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus explains it a little bit. Verse 33, he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Peter's mind is on worldly things. Peter's mind is not on the will of God. His desire is a worldly one. His desire is a selfish one. He's not thinking of the glory of God. He's thinking of the glory of man. I believe this means Peter was thinking of an earthly kingdom. He wants Jesus to set up a worldly kingdom where the Romans and all the other enemies of the Jews are defeated, where the Jewish people return to prominence on the world stage. And there is a king again in Jerusalem like David, and that king is Jesus himself. It's a return to the glory days of Israel. And Peter and the other disciples will be Jesus' commanders and vice regents, and the Jews will have prosperity and comfort and exalted status. I think that's what Peter's thinking of. And so he says, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus says, no, that's the way of Satan. That is the way of Satan, Peter. Do you remember Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness? In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Satan's temptation of Jesus. Let me read to you Luke's account of one part of it. Luke 4, starting in verse 5. It says, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, some people look at that and say, oh, Jesus saw right through Satan's deception because Satan doesn't have the authority to actually do that. I don't think that's what's going on. The Bible calls Satan the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. I think there's a certain authority or a certain leeway on his, his leash, so to speak, that God has given Satan. And Satan's turning around to Jesus saying, I'll give it to you. If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. I'll give you authority over it all. You'll have this glory over all of this kingdom, but it's a worldly kingdom. That's why Jesus refuses it's a worldly kingdom. Because remember when Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate asked, are you a king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. I did not come to set up an earthly kingdom. He did not come to be put on a throne, at least not one that you could see. He did not come to lead armies, at least not ones that you could see. 
He did not come to bring physical and material prosperity. He did not come to win worldly acclaim and glory. He came to die. He ascends to his throne through humility and meekness and servanthood and giving up his life. That's how Jesus gets to the throne. Those are the things of God. But those are not the things Peter has in mind. He has in mind the things of man. And so we should ask, what about us? What about me? What do I have in mind? What do you have in mind? Peter's statement sounded godly on the surface. But in the mind and heart, it was worldly. It was selfish. It was even satanic. Beware brothers and sisters, lest you also do the same and then find yourself on the side of Satan and not of God. You might think in your heart and in your mind, I want our church to grow and be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds in attendance. Why? I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but why? Why would you want that? Is it so that we can be the largest church in the county? Is it so that others will think well of us? Is it so that everyone will be excited when they come into this sanctuary on a Sunday? Those, my friends, are the desires of the flesh. Those are the desires of the flesh. There are plenty of huge churches that Satan is perfectly happy with. I might think myself. In fact, I have thought this in my life in the past. I want to preach to thousands of people and have a large influence for God. But why? Could it be a desire for the praise of men? Could it be completely selfish? What is it for you? What is it for you? Do you have a desire that might seem godly on the surface, but when you press down into it, it's actually a worldly desire. It's about the things of man and not the things of God. Now, I want to connect these two sections for us as we end. I want to leave you with a warning and an encouragement. One warning and one encouragement from this text. I am really thankful that Peter is in the Bible. I'm really thankful Peter's in the Bible. Because, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at guys like John the Apostle, John the Baptist, Paul, and I think those guys are so mature Paul, especially, you know, after he he became a Christian. Those guys are so mature that they have unwavering faith. They're so bold, and it seems like they're so strong and obedient. It's almost discouraging. It's almost discouraging. How am I ever going to be like that? But then Peter, he gives me hope. Peter, on the other hand, is pictured as being profoundly human. He's a normal guy. He's like us. Peter writes in one of his letters that he had a hard time fully understanding Paul's letters. That makes me feel a little better, right? Peter's failings are right there for us to see. When Peter first meets Jesus, he gets down on his knees and says, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. He is constantly sticking his foot in his mouth. He denied even knowing Jesus three times. And here Jesus calls him Satan. Peter can rise to the greatest heights... The sermon at Pentecost, you might think, where where thousands came to Christ. Or or this great confession in verses 27 through 30. He can rise to the greatest heights, but he can sink to the lowest depths. 
And so in the same conversation, in the same setting, in the same passage as that great confession, I believe that you are the Christ, in the same conversation, we see him saying words that cause Jesus to call him Satan. Don't pass that over. Understand that. This is in the same setting, the same conversation. It's probably minutes later. He had just made the great confession that, that, that we repeat over and over again with one another. And in the same setting, the same scene, he says words that cause Jesus to call him Satan. And so the warning to us is we, like Peter, are capable of both. We are also capable of both. We are capable of doing great things for God. And praise the Lord. We should try with all our hearts to do great things for the Lord. We are capable of doing great things for God. But we are also capable of desiring things, saying things, and doing things that essentially make us tools in the hands of Satan himself. We are capable of both. Now what's fascinating about this to me is what we know about the Gospel of Mark. What we know about the Gospel of Mark. We know that Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels. It was written first. It was written earliest. And so Mark is not getting any of his information from Matthew or Luke or John. This is all original stuff. He wrote first and earliest. But then the question is, where is he getting his information? Because Mark wasn't one of the twelve. Mark was not one of the 12 apostles who was with Jesus all this time. Where is he getting all of this eyewitness testimony? Well, just about every New Testament scholar and Mark commentator agrees. Mark got his information from Peter. From Peter. This is essentially the gospel according to Peter. And so it's telling to note the things that Mark writes about Peter. And what kinds of things does he include? A bunch of embarrassing stories. A bunch of stories that don't make Peter look very good. Peter was telling this stuff to Mark. Peter was giving Mark this information and telling him, encouraging him to write it down. You can almost picture Peter sitting there in a chair or something, and Mark's, Mark's over there writing and interviewing Peter. You can almost picture them sitting there and Peter saying something to the effect of, okay, There there was this one time that Jesus called me Satan. Put that in. Put that in. There's one time he called me Satan. Put that in. And and then there was another time. Me and James and John, we were up on this mountain. Jesus was transfigured before our eyes. And I said the stupidest thing. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks. The stupidest thing. Put that in. And then I, I arrogantly bragged. Get this, Mark. I arrogantly bragged that even if everyone else fell away, I wouldn't. And then later that night I did. Put that in too. The encouragement here is this. Peter shows us the freedom that we have in Christ to admit our failures. The freedom that we have to admit our failures. Why would Peter have been okay with Mark including all of this stuff? For people to read forever. It's because he knows he is forgiven. He knows he is forgiven. And when you are forgiven, your failures can only help others. When you are forgiven, your failures can only help others. Satan has no hold on you any longer. If you are in Christ, you are free from guilt or shame because Christ has taken your punishment. No punishment is left. 
to be given for your sins if you are in Christ. Jesus has suffered for it. And so in Christ, none of us get anything by trying to make ourselves sound better or more holy than we are. You don't get anything in the kingdom of God with that. What gets you somewhere in the kingdom of God is confession of sin, admitting that you're a sinner. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the spiritually poor, the spiritually needy. Jesus says of the two men who went up to the temple to pray, it was not the Pharisee who went home justified. He was praying things like, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I do this for you. I do that for you. I do this for you. It was not him who went home justified. It was the the tax collector who wouldn't even look up into heaven and stood off far, far away and beat on his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what gets you somewhere in the kingdom. Not trying to to act like you're better than you are. Trying to make people think you're more holy than you are. In fact, Jesus had no patience for those who did that, the Pharisees. You see, we need flawed heroes. We need flawed heroes. Perfect heroes are actually demoralizing. They discourage us because they're not like us. Ultimately, we crumble under the weight of that. Flawed heroes, on the other hand, encourage us. Because they're heroes, but they're also not perfect. Guys like Peter give us hope that even though we have sunk down to the lowest depths, we can also rise to great heights for God. We need flawed heroes. But then there's Jesus. And there's Jesus. You see, Jesus is the only hero whose perfection does not demoralize us. His perfection does not discourage us because his perfection is what allowed him to give himself for us. Isn't it a wonder that people who who live in sin, when they are around others who act holier than thou, so to speak, they, they, they hate it. They're repulsed by it. They're repelled by that. But when people who were living in sin were around Jesus, and he actually was holier than everyone, they loved him. They were attracted to him. They felt comfortable in his presence. You see, Jesus does not use his perfection to to lord it over us. He uses his perfection to serve us, to give of himself, to give of his life. His perfection is what allowed him to give of himself for us. Because the fact that he was without sin means he had no sins of his own to pay for. The wages of sin is death, right? The wages of sin is death. That's the way God has set up the world from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve. If you sin, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus never sinned. He never deserved death. And so his death could count for others. His death could count for you and me. Praise the Lord that he never sinned. He is the only perfect hero, and his perfection does not discourage us. It does not demoralize us. It is the very thing that gives us all the hope in the world. Jesus had no sin, and his death, therefore, could count for you. And that's the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel, that his death indeed can count for you. He went to the cross and suffered for the sins of the world, but it does not automatically appropriate itself to everyone in the world. 
Not everyone in the world is going to be saved. The Bible is not a universalist text. No, it's only those who come to him in humility and submission and faith. It's only those who repent of their sins and give their lives to him. And then, and only then, can his death count for you. Can his death be counted to you and his blood cover over your sins? Is he your savior today? Who do you say that he is? Right now we want to spend just a few moments in silent prayer. As we pray, we ask each of you to go to the Lord, to pour your heart out to him, to respond to what he has just laid on your heart, to what he has just said to you. It's going to look different for everybody. That's why we invite you to be a part of this time. That's why we want it to be individual. After we pray together, silently, individually, we'll come back. We'll have a time of invitation where anybody who needs to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. But for right now, just a few moments, let's pray.